0: The Cut.
1: The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. Lately, there have been some truly salacious stories in the news about powerful celebrity men who've crossed some lines with women they were dating. And these have been sort of aftershocks of the Me Too movement, where these new accusations—I'm thinking of Army Hammer and the allegations of abuse and cannibalism, or Marilyn Manson's rape room— brought back this important conversation on the ways that power and fame can be abused. But the fascinating thing, this time, is the way these celebrities have responded to these accusations, because the reply has essentially been, oh no, you don't understand. That was consensual. We are kinky. Kink is one of those things that's hard for people to understand, myself included. Because I think for a long time I was like, whatever, you have your shit you do behind closed doors and that's your business. I don't really feel the need to interrogate it too deeply beyond a basic sort of understanding that I shouldn't shame anyone else's kinks, you know? And so when the internet seized on the gripping details of Army Hammer's supposed cannibal fetish, I was like, should we even be lampooning this? Is this a legitimate kink? Would there be a right way to do this? But then I realized everyone was talking about what a wild fixation this cannibalism thing was supposed to be, and there was much less focus on what Army Hammer's accusers were actually saying about their relationship, which was, fetish or not, their relationship started one way, and then it took this turn. We at The Cut believe these women who are making these accusations, and we believe that the men they were involved with are hiding behind the mantle of kink— Because kink isn't an excuse for abuse. But in order for us to understand where the lines actually get crossed, as a culture, we're going to have to engage with the ideas of kink much more fully in all of its richness and deep, deep complexity.
2: We understand that, like, you can be, like, vicariously, like, excited by violence, even though real violence is disgusting and you don't want to actually hurt people. But it gets, like, framed in this way where it makes it sound like if somebody is kinky, they're beyond criticism. And that's not what it means.
1: This is Lux Alptrom.
2: And I am a longtime sex educator and an abuse survivor and someone who thinks a lot about abuse and kink. I think people think like kink, oh, like kink is choking people and kink is like leaving bruises on people and like it can be, but that's not really what it is.
1: So what is kink? Everyone I talked to had a different way of explaining it. What kink means differs for different people.
3: Well, kink is a very specific subset of the erotic and it can mean a lot of things.
0: If one feels that one is kinky, then one is kinky.
1: For Lux Alptrom, kink is very much about consent.
2: In a kink situation, it might f- it might look like the dom has all the power and control, but the real control lies with the submissive person, because it's not the purest iteration of like safe consensual kink unless you can say no or say your safe word or say whatever and make it all stop immediately.
1: This is a very clear dividing line, right? For Army Hammer, the women said stop, and he kept going. For Marilyn Manson, it was an entire lifestyle where if you said stop, you were punished more. But just like in all consensual sex, kinky or not, there's a lot of nuance and negotiation that needs to happen between the people involved. And it's all within this context of wanting to be giving.
2: There's so much pressure on you to be compliant, to please your partner, to do all these things that's like, has nothing to do with kink. But when you are in a kink environment, that can, like, be taken to the nth degree.
1: Because so much of kink is about exploration, about going into unknown or taboo terrain. So you have to be on the same page.
2: There's these moments where I'm like, oh, or like I would be, like, surprised with a thing that I had never expressed interest in and maybe didn't want to do. I don't think there is this, like, bright dividing line between abuse and kink. You know, all, all of this stuff is just, it's just, like, there's no, like, three-step guide for, like, dealing with, or there is, but it's, like, talk to people, have conversations, like, be willing. It's, like, the easiest thing and the hardest thing.
1: To hurt the ones you love. To act out scenarios that aren't normally like you. To play with power. It's playing with fire, Really. And yet, culturally, kink doesn't get talked about with gravity until something goes horribly wrong. It either gets whispered about as this super freaky, unspeakable thing, or it has this reputation of being a kind of dorky form of adult Dungeons & Dragons, you know? Like something couples try to spice up their marriage after reading Fifty Shades of Grey.
0: I think it's almost jumped straight from being um, something that's forbidden of being a cliché and being a joke. And we skipped the part where we look at it as something to be taken just as seriously as everything else we do as humans. And that I think that was part of what we were hoping to do with this anthology.
1: Author Aro Kwan. She co-edited a collection of stories called Kink. It just came out this month. Her co-editor is poet Garth Greenwell.
4: I would say Kink creates an occasion for investigation of elements of ourselves that in other aspects of our lives we may be, too, may, may be too frightening or too dangerous to investigate. So that to me is part of the great value of kink and of literature around kink.
1: Kink, like any kind of sex, like any kind of intimacy, is quite simply another way of looking at how people interact. It's not all good and it's not all bad. So R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell have curated this collection of stories that show, yes, how kink can be fun and safe, and how it can also go wrong and be unpleasant. And it can also just be kind of meh. Like, one of the things
4: that our book does not do is try to present kink as like a pure sort of stream of positivity.
1: Garth Greenwell's story in the anthology is called Gospodar, and it's about a murky, quite scary kink scenario.
4: And in it, it takes place in Sofia, Bulgaria, and the narrator is an American high school teacher who's lived for some years in Bulgaria and who is meeting for the first time a man he's chatted with online.
5: He didn't greet me or invite me in, but turned without a word, and walked to the center of what I took to be the apartment's main room. I didn't follow him. I waited at the edge of the light until he turned again and faced me. And then he did speak, telling me to undress in the hallway, take off everything. He said, take off everything and then come in.
4: It's an encounter that begins consensually And then very slowly, kind of degree by degree, moves toward violation of consent and becomes something very scary.
5: I cried out in a voice I had never heard before, a shrill sound that frightened me further that wasn't my voice at all. And I choked it off as I twisted away from him, not thinking, but in panic and pain, using all my strength. Maybe he was frightened too by my cry.
4: I wanted to dramatize a kind of failure of fantasy and desire where someone discovers that what he thought he wanted, he in fact does not want. I wanted to dramatize something that I don't think is super uncommon, which is the extent to which we are mysterious to ourselves. I think there's an unknowability that we never exhaust, and that's actually a really important component of love.
0: I'd agree with that. And I also feel that there's almost nothing more loving we can do for one another than to to really see each other. And there's almost nothing more trusting we can do for one another than to let someone else see ourselves.
1: And that sort of attempt to see the unseeable in someone you love— That's what Aro Kwan's story is about in the anthology. It's called Safe Word, and it's about a couple who goes to visit a dominatrix in a dungeon.
5: Still holding hands, they followed the dominatrix down the long hall. Then they were in a dim room, flashing mirrors and contraptions.
1: And it turns out one partner is way more into the experience than the other.
5: He was tired. His right shoulder hurt. He didn't want to hit Julie anymore. He wanted to get out of here. He wanted to untie her and take her home, soothe her and have sex with her, his wife whom he loved, but he kept going.
0: Part of what's going on in the story is that there's an asymmetry of information and the far kinkier person has been thinking about this has of course like read about it, um, has much more of an idea of what she wants. And the narrator who's being introduced to this world doesn't.
5: He hadn't even realized he'd been hoping that somehow all this would go away. That they'd have their little excursion into the foreign land in which he was expected to beat his wife then. They'd come back to their cozy, normal life in which they took care of each other. But the dominatrix was still talking.
1: The striking thing about this story, and many of the stories in the collection, is that the characters aren't always able to define their precise terms and boundaries in advance. Because over the course of the kinky encounter, the characters are experimenting with what they want. They're discovering likes and dislikes that they weren't anticipating. They're surprising themselves.
4: You know, this is another way in which kink, I think, is an aesthetic act, um, that there are fictions that allow us to get to the truth.
1: In a mask or in a costume or in a new persona, with a new set of norms and a new set of rules that exist only between you and your partner or partners, you're creating a new culture, a new set of circumstances to operate within. And this can help you more clearly see the sexual norms that we're used to operating
0: within, instead of taking them for granted.
4: I mean, also, um, who knows what, what is normal?
0: I might argue that on the face of it, heterosexual missionary sets were like, A cis man is ramming something into the body of a cis woman over and over again does not seem like definitely loving and like definitely affectionate. And this is one of the most loving things we can do for each other.
1: So much of what is considered normal or healthy or good is the way it gets framed and talked about.
4: If I'm having sex with a guy who spits in my face, that is not mean. You know, that is that guy contributing to my pleasure. You know, when I think about the really good sexual experiences I've had, my, even sexual experiences that involve consensual violence or consensual degradation, I mean, my feeling is one of great gratitude and tenderness, you know, and, and what interests me about literature as a way of exploring kink is that it allows us to approach it as the complicated thing it is, to not try to iron things out into cruel or tender or mean or nice, but instead to acknowledge, like, the complex dynamic thing that human relations really are.
1: So the complexity of kink is a double-edged sword. It can cause harm and create rifts and unearth unknowable parts within someone you thought you knew, including yourself. But also, kink can be a way to heal from trauma. After the break, author Roxanne Gay talks about her relationship with kink and her story in the anthology. Roxane Gay's contribution to the kink anthology is called Reach. And it's about the ways that even when two people are on exactly the same page in a long-term kinky relationship, complications still come up.
3: And, you know, a lot of times when you read about kink, you read about it in the context of sort of exciting encounters with strangers and play parties and all oh, of that's good, but I'm old. And so what does it look like in a marriage?
5: I enjoy tormenting my wife, Sasha. I do it because she lets me. Sasha lets me torment her because she enjoys it. We play little games, share mutual interests.
3: And so what would a couple that was sharing this kinky dynamic, like? what would that look like? And then how would it look like in the sense of erotica? And so that's the story I wrote.
5: I stop her, push her away. It's a rough, unkind gesture, still holding the end of my belt. I start walking away when there's a tug. She starts to crawl after me tentatively at first, then faster to keep up.
3: Well, kink is a very specific subset of the erotic. And it can mean a lot of things, but I think it's like queer, a catch-all term. And it's a catch-all term for people who are interested in dominance and submission, BDSM, and alternate forms of sexual expression.
1: To a degree, you know, the definition of of kink, as you said, is like big and Mm all-encompassing. To what degree could one argue, like, we are all a bit kinky?
3: (laughs) I mean... I think we, I mean, people would love to say that just like we're all a little bit queer, but the answer is no, we are not. (laughs) Um, I think that anyone can be interested in spicing things up and trying new things. And some of those things might be kink related for sure. And I would hope that everyone has a capacity for kink, but I don't think that's the case. I think that there are people who who prefer things to be very traditional and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And like, they, you know, there are some people who are like, you know what, I want to eat peanut butter and jelly every single day. And I love it.
1: Although I feel like if you eat peanut butter and jelly all day, every day, it like goes full circle into being like a crazy kink. I think
3: so. I think that's very kinky quite frankly. That's a lot of peanut butter and jelly.
5: Sasha wants me to take her somewhere, a place she has no vocabulary for a place neither of us has been. I can hear it in her cries when we're fucking, or I'm stretching her limbs out across the bed, or we're crammed into the antiseptic space of a train bathroom. I can always tell we're not quite there yet. It creates tension between us.
1: Roxanne's story is all about that unknowable tension that still exists between this married couple. And the way that kink lets them exist in that void, knowing that they can't really unravel the mysteries of each other and the mysteries of themselves. And honestly, they're not trying to. As Garth and Aro, the editors of kink, point out, looking for a reason or a root cause of kink is so not the point.
0: I think I personally am uninterested in looking for a cause because I think that once you start looking for a cause, it can be very easy to start wondering if there's a cure. And I'm extremely uninterested in the idea of a cure.
4: Yeah, and I guess I would say, you know, I agree with Aro that, you know, anytime you start looking for an etiology of something, you're on the road to pathologizing it. I don't know where the impulse comes from. I don't know where the form comes from. I don't know where the desire comes from. But some of the content through which those desires are worked out, I think it is interesting.
1: Kink is a way of constructing a trellis of rules and agreements. And so the process of figuring out what you want and what you don't want, of trying different scenarios, can make kink sort of a laboratory of desires. And for this reason, Roxanne has found kink to be healing. I mean, for the uninitiated, it seems kind of fascinating that one could use BDSM as a way to heal from trauma. How does that work?
3: Well, it just depends. I don't think it's for everyone. It's definitely something, especially in my early 20s, uh, that helped me understand consent uh, because... I had dealt with sexual violence and was carrying quite a lot of trauma. And when I stumbled into the kink community, I found a framework for consent where I could be sexual and be safe at the same time. I think when you are 19 and 20 and you're carrying all this trauma in your body and you're scared of men, and scared of being touched and you find that there's a, f- a language that you can use like, and that there are things called safe words and that you can negotiate an encounter before it ever happens and like you can choreograph the entire thing. It's safe, so you know whatever happens, what I'm afraid of is not going to happen. And that can be very reassuring. Kink
4: is a way of... Um, dramatizing things to which one may have been subjected. It's a way of taking violence that one has suffered and to transform that violence into an occasion for pleasure. I mean, that's an incredibly powerful thing that kink and other kinds of sexual practices can do. I mean, the ways in which we eroticize sort of questions of oppression, like the way in which I, as a gay man who grew up in the pre-internet American South, have eroticized the word faggot. Like, that is not a choice I made. I think that is a mechanism by which I survived. But what can be a choice is to script an encounter in which I take control of that word and how that word is used against me, and therefore that word can give me access to a kind of rapture that nothing else can.
0: It seems to me like a not entirely separate impulse from um, the ways in which we can turn our personal life problems, trauma, suffering loss into literature and into art and into writing. It's turning pain into flowers.
1: The weird sort of gray zone that exists within kink is its appeal and its beauty. It straddles the liminal space between love and anger and all the unknowable parts of yourself and the unknowable parts of another. It can be, as Garth Greenwell put it, a technology of transformation, although it is a powerful and sometimes dangerous technology. And this all underscores the gravity of the accusations made against these high-caliber celebrities. Imagine how hard it must be to explain to a rigid legal system, to a media landscape that thinks in black and white, that a line was crossed. And to have the courage of your convictions to know, to feel, to understand that nuanced yet definite boundary between pleasure and pain. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This episode was produced by B.A. Parker, Allison Behringer, Jasmine Aguilera, and me. Executive produced by Stella Bugbee, Nishat Kerwa, and Hannah Rosen. Mixed and scored by Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Jen Gann, and thanks as well to the extremely sexy, dulcet tones of Oliver Blank. If you'd like to hear more of his beautiful voice, but also maybe cry a bit, check out his podcast, The One Who Got Away. We are a production of The Cut and New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support all of their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman. Thanks for listening.